Hello, and welcome to episode 177 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Seth Green, the executive director of Youth and Opportunity United, also known as YOU. He's a lecturer at Northwestern University and is the former director of the Job Opportunity Investment Network. Mr. Green is the founder and executive director of Americans for Informed Democracy and is a founding board member for Thinking Beyond Borders. Mr. Green is also a former senior associate at McKinsey & Company's Social Sector Office. Having received a BA from Princeton, a JD from Yale, he's also received master's degrees from the London School of Economics and Oxford University. Mr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. I'm happy to be here, and I think the world of your podcast, so I'm very grateful and honored to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is coming from a former civic, uh, a current civic, civic engagement leader. That's uh, quite quite an honor, so thank you for that, uh, for, for your uh, appreciative comments. But first question to you that I'd like to pose is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Sure. So currently, I lead Youth and Opportunity United. It is an organization that is passionately committed to closing the opportunity gap. Uh, we live in one of the most inequitable times in American and global history. Uh, the you know staggering uh, difference between those who are in the upper third of our income distribution and the bottom third uh, really comes through in youth opportunity. So. We've uh, looked through uh, the work of Harvard economist uh, Robert Putnam, and what he shows is just that when uh, you're in the upper third of the income distribution, you're typically getting about $5,300 of resources uh, through out-of-school opportunities. And if you're in the bottom third, you're getting per year. Uh, That's extracurricular, that's tutoring, that's all of the really the fundamental building blocks of child development outside of school, uh, where most child development happens. And um, the, the kind of short story here is just that we live in a world where, you know, child opportunity is not surprisingly, you know, entirely connected to family wealth, and that wealth is more divided than ever. And so we live in a world where not only is there greater inequity, but there's greater likelihood that our future will be unequal because there's so much uh, replicability in today's unequal world to tomorrow's. And so essentially our role is very passionately to try to uh, end that cycle of poverty, uh, provide really um, transformational opportunities to low-income and high-potential young people and to prepare them for post-secondary life success. And so um, you know, what I'm up to right now is uh, really aggressively raising resources and uh, building out the, you know, work that we do every day. We, um, when I joined six years ago, had an incredible team of uh, 23 people, and we're serving 450 kids and really making a huge difference in their lives. And today we're happily uh, with a team of 85, and we're serving about 1,600 kids and helping them to reach that post-secondary and life success milestone. Um, so that's today. And then uh, in the past, you know, a lot of the work that you described has all been around leadership to end poverty, whether it's through job opportunities for low-wage workers and pathways to family-sustaining wages that join, uh, or at McKinsey & Company, where it was really more thought work around, you know, what does it look like for the Gates Foundation to 
uh, build a new fund to promote economic development in parts of Africa? Or what does it look like for the United Way to help be a change agent in the social and economic recovery in Detroit? So I've fortunately over the last 15 years had a lot of different opportunities and um, leadership experiences, but they've all been pointed toward one goal, which is reducing the long-term poverty in our country. Reducing long-term poverty in the United States sounds uh, a legacy project of the LBJ Great Society program. Um, <laughs> I, I would like to delve just for a moment uh, quickly into some of the data about um, YOU because uh, obviously data makes us stronger, a, a quite a compelling argument. You mentioned um, $5,300 in resources outside of school dedicated to children. So two questions packed in there. One, uh, and that was for the upper income, upper third of the income bracket. How much would that be for uh, the same child in the same community in the bottom third of the income bracket? And then what exactly is included in that $5,300 figure? Because um, clearly it's much more expensive per year to educate someone in the public schools, to pay rent, to house them and shelter them, to pay for their food, uh, to pay for whatever um, clothing is on them. I mean, I would think that the actual cost, especially for the upper third of the income bracket in the United States, of just having a child being alive and part of society for a year would greatly exceed $5,300. So what what is in that $5,300? And then could you compare it to the lower income bracket to get a sense of the magnitude of this issue? Sure. Uh, so to your uh, point, um, I am raising two girls and can absolutely validate that uh, the totality of cost is much higher per child for those who are in that upper third and working really hard to make sure their kids have all their needs and, you know, their uh, their opportunities met. Uh, to your specific question, the $5,300 um, compares to a low-income family spending $480. In terms of what's in that number, it's really about the extracurricular learning activities that we specifically focus on. So to your point, doesn't include food, doesn't include shelter, doesn't include um, many other needs they may even have for in-school time. There are a lot of now um, schools that have to charge fees for specific aspects of opportunity. So this is really about, you know, what parents are doing for different types of extracurriculars. There's a lot more pay-to-play sports. So uh, both my daughters swim. They are in, you know, what are private swimming systems ultimately because they're young and there just aren't any like free available uh, swimming opportunities for kids that are three and six, as an example. So it's everything from the extracurricular swimming to the formal tutoring for when you're older, let's say the ACT or SAT, so you can get a better score. And so what we focus on is really all of those learning resources, many of them experiential and fun in nature. And so the number that we were searching for to get a sense of what's the inequity that we address and solve for is that number of 5,300 versus 480, and a sense that there's an 11 times greater set of opportunity if you're in the upper third. And, and by the way, this is um, something that we think is great that kids in the upper third are getting these opportunities. So our goal is mm -hmm. not to, you know, in any way pick at that. In fact, the research says that's the best money parents can spend because out-of-school opportunity is the greatest predictor of your post-secondary and life success. 
Um, it's really that we want to raise that 480 because we know in today's economy with um, really a necessity of post-secondary credentialing and a knowledge that your executive functioning and social and emotional health is the key to that post-secondary persistence and success, we need actually more resources than ever in that out-of-school time learning. So, so our goal is to raise you know, the opportunity set of those who are growing up in a low-income family. Got it. So um, could you walk us through from a child's perspective and, and what kind of child it is? It's a second grader or an eighth grader. Um, and, you know, and are those kids from public school or private school and what neighborhoods are they from and do you have facilities? Just walk us through from, from, from a child's perspective exactly what's happening. Maybe I get out of school at 3 o'clock and then I take a bus to go to YOU and there's people there and what am I doing? Just walk us through what exactly this program is and then we can get into the societal social implications of uh, hopefully this program's success. Awesome. So um, every day when your school lets out, um, we actually are in the school. So um, we do have a headquarters and youth center and we have some specialty like demonstration kitchen and a maker space and some other incredible resources that kids can come to. But the, the standard approach is every day after school at 11 schools across our communities, um, kids just literally walk out of their class when the bell rings and they walk into typically the gym or the cafeteria and our YOU team members are there and they're ready with snack and um, they call it team building time. There's some fun activities for about half an hour. Then the kids move into academic support for about an hour where they get uh, support to finish their homework, to get tutoring on uh, issues that are coming up in the classroom. And then we typically have about 60 to 90 minutes after that of what we call social and emotional time. It's fun. It's doing artistic activities. It's doing uh, science experimentation. It's playing sports. Uh, but our core interest is about how do we help these kids build their social and emotional skills. So whether they're playing basketball or doing a scientific experiment or uh, doing an artwork, um, we're really focused on how are we building resilience, how are we building persistence, how are we creating an optimism about their future. And so our staff is really creative and has incredible skills. And so what we try to do is constantly weave their excitement and their joy for educating with these kind of core fundamental competencies that we're building. And so, so that basically encapsulates the three hours that kids spend every day with us. And it goes from third grade to 12th grade. And it's very age um, tailored. So in third grade, it's more of us teaching them. By their high school years, they're entirely leading it. So we just give them a charge. For example, in the leadership project, um, what issue of social justice do you want to focus on? And then they build a team. And our instructors are really facilitating their learning, but it's all youth-led and youth-activated, if that makes sense. So we try to grow with the kids we serve in everything that we do. So supposing that this is taking place uh, right after school until, um, let's say, from 2 to 5 p.m., um, and let's say that mom and dad are working during this time, um, so to what would kids be doing before they enroll in YOU? What were they doing during those hours um, that they're no longer doing now? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the most classic example is sitting on a couch and watching TV. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, 
you know, um, we're serving a broad group of young people with a broad group of experiences. So mm-hmm. some of these kids were in um, a program after school, but maybe it didn't come with, you know, snack, and it didn't have um, as much of the social and emotional learning component. You know, some mm-hmm. of these kids were playing in the backyards um, with their uh, younger siblings. Um, so there's a varied set of experiences, but in total, we would say that, um, you know, they're moving from a place where those are lost hours. They're hours that um, every hour is an opportunity to learn in a fun way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in in, in aggregate, we're, we're translating a lot of, you know, lost oppor- opportunity because all of this growth as a young person is an opportunity to grow and learn um, into, you know, really high-functioning, high-productivity uh, hours from the perspective of lifelong learning and development. Um, so if you were making... Thing I say is that the, the facts about this time period, um, the teens, and the only part of who we serve is teens, but for the teens that we serve, you know, three to six, those after-school hours are actually the greatest hours of risk for uh, three things, for, for violence, either committing or being a victim of, um, for, uh, you know, sexual um, intercourse and, and other uh, decisions uh, in that kind of world, and then uh, for drug use. And so, um, you know, we believe that our work is really focused on the positive. So our kids are incredible and we're preparing them for even greater post-secondary life success. At the same time, we are reducing the risk of some of these um, negative possibilities that are um, very prominent during these hours of the day. So you, YOU has been in operation for in excess of four decades. And so there's been time for alumni of the program to mature throughout life and to see kind of where they end up uh, and potentially evaluate that as uh, a consequence of the program. So have you seen, uh, I guess, in the more short-term perspective, uh, reduction in truancy or teen pregnancies, uh, improvement in grades or other kinds of metrics for the short term while they're still students? And in the long term, uh, have you seen lower mortality rates uh, and more professional success among individuals who have participated in YU compared to their cohort in um, the same middle or high school down the road on the other side of Chicago? So, um, yes, absolutely to the short-term question. We measure year-over-year growth, and our kids are outperforming on every metric. So, Nine and ten are growing in very demonstrable ways in social and emotional, in academics, meaning performance, meaning motivation. According to teachers, uh, we're seeing 85% of kids uh, performing better or as well. So we have good year-over-year data. It's very affirming. We do not have the um, longer-term longitudinal data. And anecdotally, yes, um, there are kids that grew up in YOU that we now see in the community and they're some of our best advocates and, you know, they talk about how it changed their life. Um, statistically, we just didn't build out those evaluation systems. We have a current project underway to aim toward that kind of study. Um, the interest is that if you can look long-term, you can learn a lot more about what you're doing that is most effective towards your ultimate goal. There's a great book by Paul Tuff, uh, It's How Children Succeed. Mm-hmm. And it looks at the KIPP program 
And Kip was originally in the 90s producing outstanding outcomes on achievement. But what they found was that even though they were really moving the kids up in achievement, they actually weren't when they finally got the study on this and they looked over longitudinal uh, data, uh, they weren't moving the needle um, nearly as much on college persistence. So even though their kids were performing higher end tests, their kids were still dropping out of college. And what they did was they redesigned their curriculum to be much more intentional about building some of the social and emotional skills necessary to be successful in post-secondary. And, you know, we're having far greater impact. And so it's just an example where short-term data only gives you part of the equation. That's all we have right now as an agency. But the gold and what we're striving toward is that longitudinal data that can tell us whether or not our impact is sustaining and what aspects of our work are most long-term in the, you know, many kind of uh, and, and ever developing life cycle of, a, of an adolescent. So, if you were making the argument, because you are publicly funded in part um, and partially mm-hmm. privately funded, so if you were making the argument to uh, Chicago City Council members or the mayor of Chicago about why why OU needs public funding and is actually in the public interest to support this program, I'm sure you would talk about the achievement gap and how you're reducing um, the achievement gap and especially uh, uh, creating more opportunities um, to address uh, uh, growing income inequality and to facilitate uh, climbing the socioeconomic status ladder um, between generations um, to prevent the entrenchment of a class system in the Chicago area. Can you elaborate on these themes, maybe contradict or agree with some of those conclusions um, and, and just kind of make the case about why this program is in the public interest and maybe elaborate a little bit on what, you know, the achievement gap and income inequalities, what the implications are um, of, of those on the American dream, especially in uh, Chicago. Awesome. Well, I mean, just to start out, you know, the American dream currently is just that. It's a dream that does not exist statistically. It is, I mean, you know, a very small uh, proportion of kids that are moving through that pathway that, you know, we um, talk about and uh, believe in but don't actually uh, see in practice at nearly the level that the dream suggests. And Ta-Nehisi Coates and a number of others have written brilliantly on that phenomenon. And to your point, you know, if we're talking to the city um, and here in Edmondson, we talk regularly with our city and with our village of Skokie, these are neighboring uh, communities of Chicago that we primarily focus on. And the case that we make is that it's about the child. Uh, The achievement gap is ultimately an opportunity gap. What kids um, are provided out of school impacts the way they enter school and absorb the academic instruction. So, is a great way to build the child's competencies, also to multiply the impact of the dollars going to public education for that child. It's also a huge community need. Um, This is both in the negative, we're avoiding some of these um, incidences of violence, which are huge here in Chicagoland. It's one of the um, real challenges that our uh, region has faced that um, other cities have been more successful on, which is reducing crime and the greatest way obviously out of crime is through opportunity and so you know this is absolutely a a community need Uh, and then the final piece is just thinking about um, how 
we situate our region in the context of the country. Um, the way that employers and um, really all of the people that are making decisions about where to move today um, are basing that on what is the vibrancy of that community. And Chicago is a place that is right at the cusp of losing or gaining population each year. It kind of goes back and forth, but it's definitely not a place like Austin, Texas or Portland that is, you know, climbing at this point. And um, truly, the decision for employers, the decision for families is um, what is that community ecosystem look like? And Philadelphia, a number of other cities that have really been able to raise their post-secondary rates over the last few years, um, they're thriving in this context where you're really trying to compete nationally in a world where uh, the more you're graduating your young people successfully, the more you're creating uh, the type of environment that people want to move to. So, Seth, I'd like to transition for a minute over to you um, and your life and your life decisions. You've been an entrepreneur. Um, you've been uh, – you're currently a successful executive director of a nonprofit organization. You've experienced 400% growth in the last uh, six years at this organization. You've clearly been quite successful um, in your various uh, endeavors. Yet the common theme is, is, is advancing the public interest in a way, in uh, either through civic engagement, through education. Um, you've been quite involved at, at essentially philanthropic, uh, mission-driven sort of organizations. Can you speak about why that has been important to you, how you've chosen to make your decisions, why you've decided to uh, and, uh, proceed down uh, this pathway of, of entrepreneurship, um, but also this really civic-oriented, um, I guess, lens that you've put on your career? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I uh, passionately believe that we need to take seriously the, I mean, just uh, tragic inequity of our time. Um, we're growing up in a period of great wealth, and yet, I mean, I see every day there are a growing number of young people that are not given the most basic opportunity to develop into their full selves. And so, I mean, I'm a firm believer that everyone should be asking the question that Peter Singer does about effective altruism. So I am very much a believer that everyone has their own passion um, I've worked at McKinsey & Company. I worked for a summer at Lazard, which is an investment bank. Um, I know that there are people that absolutely love that way of thinking. They want to add to the vibrancy of different sectors in our country. Um, I just think the key question all of us need to be asking whatever we do is how am I adding to uh, the very real social issues that we need to address as a country. And so if you're in banking, and I see this every day because a lot of the People that are so generous to YLU's work are earning resources there, but then, you know, very much thinking about how do I reinvest um, the wealth that I'm building into um, what I believe is a more, a more just uh, and, and more fair economy that uh, benefits all and that gives a chance to all kids to, you know, move up into the world that I'm in. So, so that's kind of the underlying belief system. Um, I will say I think it's a growing belief system. If you look at the 
entrepreneurs and other young people that are very successful in the business world today, I mean, all of them are signing giving pledges where they plan to um, give away huge sums of their wealth and to make the world a more just place, believe that they need to be change agents uh, and that their lives will only have um, full meaning. Obviously, it's wonderful to start a great business, but they'll only have full meaning if they can translate uh, their wealth into broader opportunity for the public interest. And then in terms of kind of how I've approached my career, um, and I know that some of your listeners are thinking about how they're going to approach theirs, you know, I think a lot of it is about thinking, what issue do I care about? What kind of difference do I want to make? And then how do you intersect that with what you're good at and where you need to grow to be better able to lead on those issues? And so for me, um, I feel like one thing I learned early on founding Americans for Informed Democracy is that I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I like big ideas. I like to be in a role of um, really building networks and being out there and being uh, an advocate. At the same time, I learned early on that I was not necessarily um, the best at kind of um, defining a strategy and sticking to it and using that as the filter through which I did everything. And so when I started Americans for Informed Democracy, there were things I noticed that I felt like could have been run so much better from a business perspective, and I really needed to grow as a leader to be the change I wanted to see in the world. And so went to McKinsey Company as an example uh, because I wanted to learn those leadership skills and those strategy skills that were definitely an opportunity for me so that I could come back into a much bigger organizational context and now lead an organization with 85 people and you know, be constantly asking what does our strategic plan say and how do we communicate this and questions that as an entrepreneurial young leader I knew I needed to ask but I wasn't adequately ready to and uh, ready to lead on. So my other thought for your listeners is really thinking about, you know, the issue and where it connects to your strengths and equally so where you need to grow if you're going to truly advance the issue that you care about. So as we approach the end of the podcast, I'd like to ask you a final question, Seth. You've just taken a moment to elaborate upon what you've done and why you've done it. I wonder if you can take a moment and speak, uh, suppose that you're speaking to uh, graduates of the YOU program, and just take a moment and speak to them about what you hope your legacy will be and how they represent um, a portion of that legacy, uh, what you will have accomplished uh, at the end of your career by investing uh, in this program, investing in them, and investing in so many others whom you've sought to help through your various uh, uh, career initiatives throughout the course of your uh, career path. Yeah, so um, I am close with a number of our graduates, and, you know, I I hope the legacy that they um, would – you know, uh, I mean, I mean, obviously it's about them, right? But, but for since you asked the question about what legacy would mean for me, I, I would hope that they would feel that um, they were truly given the same chance to be successful as uh, my own daughters. Um, you know, I hope will <laughs> will feel when they when they fully grow up, which is to say that they feel like um, they were really given access to uh, this world that I think we in privileged circumstances take for granted, but that 
um, means, you know, I uh, really control and, and help to manage um, a lot of, of where I end up. So I don't know if that if that helps, but I guess I, I look at so much of this as a parent now because my kids are three and six, and I think about what we're able to provide them with and how they are just given entry to um, a way of looking at the world where they see how they can realize their full potential if they seek to. And, and my greatest dream, although, I mean, to be clear, there's so many inequities that still exist. So YOU does incredible work, and then our kids face institutionalized racism. They face, um, you know, very deep structural disadvantage. They face all of the inequities that go beyond just extracurricular. But my hope is that they feel, if you're a part of YOU for the 10 years from third to 12th grade, that um, they have truly been given entry to the world of opportunity that exists in our country uh, for those who um, are, you know, are given access to it. And, and I hope that we're an access point and that, you know, ultimately that changes their trajectory. My origin interest in this is my own grandfather's experience growing up in poverty, um, having opportunities and, you know, ultimately talking about those opportunities being the gateway for our family out of poverty and into what was a very privileged experience for me growing up. I hope, you know, in the greatest sense that they may be able to work hard and be able to tell their kids about how um, they were able to kind of see through uh, their experience to give their kids a better life. And that has been Seth Green, the Executive Director of the Youth and Opportunity United, YOU, lecturer at Northwestern University, former director for the Job Opportunity Investment Network, founder and executive director of Americans for Informed Democracy, a founding board member at Thinking Beyond Borders, and a former senior associate at McKinsey & Company, who speaks about his uh, life trajectory and his career uh, as a response to a basic question that Seth asks himself, which is, quote, how am I adding to social issues facing the nations, unquote. He speaks about uh, seeking to be in line with the philosophy of effective altruism, where he's extending to those without that which already uh, is extended to others with and, and had been extended to him um, earlier in his life by others. He seeks to facilitate the climbing of a socioeconomic ladder in society um, for those who otherwise may not be able to, uh, creating a just uh, a more fair society for all. He And he does it, um, he has this optimism about the growth of altruism in the United States, that this is a growing and expanding trend, and there's an increasing number of people across the nation who share um, his interest in creating a better place for others. But for Seth, he also receives something from it. It's not 100% giving. In fact, uh, Seth advocates that you can have a more meaningful life. You have a a fuller life with greater fulfillment um, by translating your wealth into advancing the public interest. So it's important to note that, of course, uh, in addition to Seth being selfless and uh, advancing the public interest by uh, improving the state of, of, of the world for those who otherwise uh, may not have such opportunities, Seth also, also gains much um, personally, a lot of personal enrichment and meaning in his life by by taking uh, the initiative to, uh, to in some in some ways resurrect uh, an American dream that may be but a distant mirage 
for so many um, of fewer uh, economic means. Uh, and so for Seth, advancing the public interest is, uh, is really about ensuring that to the best of his abilities, we're taking kids, uh, we're taking individuals in society, and we're presenting them with opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be on the table for them. And, and he hopes that future generations will be able to pull themselves up uh, out of a uh, recurring cycle of poverty through the opportunities that have been made available through his program. So, Seth, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, continuing to listen to your podcast. Excellent. Um, uh, and that has been Episode 177 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Cashbox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And should you have any comments, thoughts, or reactions to this conversation with Seth, you're welcome to leave an up to three-minute message at 240-630-0380 for Public Interest Podcast, and it may very well be placed on our website. And should you wish to support the mission of Public Interest Podcast, you're welcome to contribute in any amount you feel comfortable with on publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.